This is the Unstacked Startups Podcast, where we have real conversations with tech founders, leaders, VCs, and early employees of top technology companies. This is Elon Sachs. We're fascinated by those startups that change entire industries, that change the world. We're fascinated by the startups that become unicorns. But we don't spend enough time looking at the companies that didn't quite make it, the startups that failed, the founders that failed. To our audience, I'd like to introduce Dr. Thomas Eisenman, professor at Harvard Business School and economist who is deeply rooted in the startup ecosystem. He's advised hundreds of entrepreneurial ventures and sat on the boards of multiple world-renowned startups. He's done extensive research over the course of his career, speaking with founders and startups that didn't make it. And through that research, authored Why Startups Fail, filled with stories and lessons from the startup world. Dr. Eisenman, I feel our discussion today to talk about startup failure couldn't be timelier. The tech landscape has shifted in the past 18 months or so. We're seeing decreased startup valuations, increasing layoffs, and a challenging fundraising environment. Yet history has shown that challenging times often breed amazing companies. Think Airbnb and Uber, who emerged from the 2008 recession, or how Microsoft and Apple found their footing during the economic downturns of the mid-1970s. It seems during these periods of adversity, true innovation can still occur. And I mean, we're seeing that firsthand, certainly with, with AI. With that backdrop in mind, can you share a startup story from your book, that truly resonates with you, uh, particularly in the tech sector? When, I mean, if you think investors do a good job of picking better startups, when they're investing in fewer of them, almost by definition, the, only the strongest are going to get started. So, and they get started with less competition, right? Because there are fewer being funded. Um, and um, big companies that often sort of keep an eye on what's going on in adjacent spaces have got their head in the sand for sure. They're they're going through the same thing, so uh, battening the hatches and not inclined to to um, explore strange new worlds. Um, so so much less competition, and then um, all of the uh, uh, other people laid off by big tech companies with incredible talent are out there looking for jobs. Um, they're available um, and less expensive. Space is less expensive. So it costs less to start something, um, and uh, uh, you have less competition. So it's a pre- it's a pretty good formula for those that do survive this time, um, it, it, you know, coming out um, just roaring along. Uh, so I do think we'll see that. Chapter one of my book focuses on a startup that came out of the MIT Media Lab called Jibo. Uh, Jibo was past tense. Almost all the startups in the book are past tense. Uh, Jibo was a, um, a robot, a stationary robot, about um, 14 inches tall um, and um, swiveling three segments that swiveled in, in uncanny ways. You could sort of twist and turn and look like it was dancing. The head was a big orb with a big eye, so it didn't look humanoid. It, it looked um, very minimalistic. We're now accustomed to um, Alexa, for example, um, 
responding to our prompts, but but Jibo would initiate and, and tell jokes, and it was programmed with with the usual you know weather forecasts and traffic, and you know, can tell you sure, stock sports prices, games but, and but it, yeah. But it wasn't there f- mostly for utility. If it was, um, uh, you you were fine, but um, it cost when it was launched. It was supposed to cost five hundred dollars. Cost eventually got uh, um, well above eight hundred dollars. And it was late. Um, it launched with a Kickstarter campaign that was 18 months late. So people were the original backers. It was a very successful Kickstarter campaign, but the backers got cranky and um, it was delayed. And there were uh, a, a huge amount of technical difficulty getting the thing to work. So uh, the team burned through 75 million of venture capital, eventually launched the product. Sales were disappointing. Um, and uh, some people who had it absolutely loved it. Um, and, uh, you know, it became a, a tight emotional bond. Others who were looking uh, more for um, for utility from the product were, um, at this point, um, right around the same time, uh, Amazon had launched Alexa. So for $200 at the time, and, you know, even less these days, uh, you could get your stock quotes and your traffic forecast and, 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 and so forth. So, um, people who wanted utility were disappointed. Other people were enamored. Um, but uh, VCs looked at this and said, you know, 75 million was enough. Um, and so the business failed. Anyway, Jibo um, raises these questions about who's to blame. Um, you know, is it management mistakes? Could they have, um, did they hit the right balance of emotional connection and utility? Uh, could they have seen Amazon coming doubtful? Um, you know, and you look at a lot of, of uh, ideas that the investors had along the way, you know, did it really need to have three segments? Could you cut it down to two and save some money and make the product cheaper? Could you actually just put the software into a computer and forget the robot altogether and still have the emotional connection? So um, it, it, it turns out, I think the lesson from Jibo is startup failure is complicated. We are programmed as humans to look for simple explanations for things. We, we like to have one clear cause. Uh, but when you study startup failure, um, what you realize is uh, it, it is rarely simple. And Jibo G- is by no means a simple failure. Very, very interesting. It's funny as you say that startup failure is complicated. And sometimes there might be an array of different reasons or factors that contribute to that. I was tempted as you were speaking to say, you know, Dr. Eisman, if you could give one reason, but I don't even think it's fair to put you <laughs> on a spot like that, you know? The Jibo case is a touchstone for, for, for me and for the work I've done on failure. It, it, when, when we teach this case to, to my MBA students, we always ask the question, was Jibo a failure? You know, it forces you to actually um, failed by whose, you know, if you look at the dictionary definition of failure, it's a shortfall relative to expectations, which begs the question, whose expectations and, and what expectations? And you, know, you could say from Cynthia Brazil's, the, from the founder's standpoint, she proved that she could create a robot that made an incredible um, emotional connection to human. You know, from societal perspective, um, you might look at Jibo and say, yeah, investors lost $75 million and, you know, they made more than that some other place. So, you know, we need people to try things and Jibo seeded the world with ideas that live, lived on in, in yes. other ventures um, and, uh, and with talent that went out and learned a lot um, from, from doing this and went on to other companies and, and other startups. So, 
um, you know, the investor definition of failure didn't make money is a valid one and an important one to keep an eye on. Dr. Eisenman, in your book, you talk about, I think you talk about six patterns of failure. And, and if you feel like you can touch on all of them right now, you know, by all means, or if you feel like you'd like to highlight a couple of them and why you think they're critical for entrepreneurs to understand, uh, that would be, that would be great. Probably the number one killer of early stage startups is what um, I've called a false start, just like track and field or, you know, swimming. Um, when the athlete uh, literally jumps the gun to get an edge, um, sometimes they jump a little too fast. And many entrepreneurs, um, the, the entrepreneurial version of the false start is um, you start building and you, you build and sell the thing before you've actually figured out, is there a strong unmet need for the thing? And is that, if there is indeed a strong unmet need, is the solution you've devised actually the best solution? So, um, you know, all your listeners will know we have a name for that now. Thank you. Thanks to Steve Blank. It's customer discovery work. And even though for 15 years, the lean startup crowd has um, um, proselytized uh, the the need for uh, careful, thorough, rigorous customer discovery work and experimentation with minimum viable products, a shocking um, number of entrepreneurs skip that second, which uh, given given your background will probably resonate. Um, I call bad bedfellows and um, it is some combination of the key resource providers um, in the venture. And by that, I mean the co-founders, the rest of the senior team, um, the uh, outside investors and, and any strategic partners um, dysfunctional relationships between those parties um, get um, compound to the point where, uh, uh, you know, if you've got an incredible fit with what the market needs, maybe you can get past all that. But um, uh, these these um, relationship problems are serious enough to to um, to kill the startup. The, the third early stage pattern is a false positive, and we are unfortunately all familiar with false positives and false negatives. A false negative is uh, you thought you got a signal when you were launching the thing that this wasn't going to work, and you stopped. Um, and you know, 18 months later, you pick up the paper, or if, if anybody picks up newspapers these days, and hear that the idea you had just went public. False positive is you think you're on the right track, but you're not, and you you um, spend too much time, too much money, um, too much effort moving in the wrong direction. And um, false positives, there's a particular setting for early stage entrepreneurs where they're vulnerable to false positive. Every early stage entrepreneur needs early adopters to get going. And um, uh, you love them, you need them, um, you will uh, work hard to serve them. Sometimes the needs of the early adopters are different than the needs of the mainstream customers you need to build a big business. And when that's the case, you can sort of head off too far, too fast, too hard in the direction of the early adopters. Late stage, you know, we're talking late stage sort of series B, C and beyond. The key um, failure pattern is a speed trap where basically you get some early momentum. Uh, VCs pour a bunch of money into your company. Um, expecting continued growth. Um, you as an entrepreneur love growth, so you didn't need to have your arm twisted. 
and um, a bunch of bad things can happen when a company grows really fast. Um, the obvious one is um, you connected really well with your early adopters, but as you move further and further away from that sweet spot, it gets harder to acquire customers, right? By definition, they're less interested in your thing. You have to cut your price or market harder. Um, and in the meantime, um, your growth has attracted rivals, other startups. So they come in, they put pressure on price, they put pressure on costs. Uh, there's another pattern, I call it help wanted, and it's help of two forms, right? When you, when you get bigger, you need specialists and, and you know, if you're in the direct to consumer business and you're running a warehouse and you're shipping things, you really need somebody who actually understands how to sure. run a warehouse. And sometimes the failure to get the right person on a senior team in a critical function uh, can really be debilitating. And, and uh, I mean, as, as you know, well, sort of three months, six months to find the right person and then three months, to six months to see if they're working out. You know, and if they're not, three to six months to replace them. So, you know, we're 12 to 18 months into the life cycle of, of a young company. You can you can experience a lot of trouble in the meantime and burn through Absolutely. a lot of cash. The last failure pattern um, I call uh, cascading miracles. Sometimes your startup is so big and bold and audacious, you know, think of SpaceX or Tesla for that matter. These ventures um, have a bunch of things that are new and different and need to go right. You know, radical change in customer behavior, probably some regulatory change, usually the cooperation of big established companies um, that maybe already benefit from the status quo, vast amounts of capital, operational complexity. And, and uh, sometimes it works. SpaceX worked. Um, Tesla is working. Um, but uh, very often, you know, think of Segway for, for listeners who can remember that one or um, Webvan. You know, we take online grocery delivery uh, for granted now, but the first one to try it in a serious way lost a billion dollars. Um, so, so you need a cascade of miracles. So those are the patterns. Naturally, I would lean to double tap on, you know, the talent topic, which I think is, is sort of a part of two elements here. You got the wrong bedfellows part in early stage or hiring incredible leaders at a later stage. A cohesive team can, you know, obviously make or break a startup. Is there a is there a story and maybe let's focus on early stage startups. Is there a story that you think of as it pertains to the wrong bedfellows, you know, failure pattern. Yeah, the, the touchstone case in the book for that failure pattern is Quincy Apparel. Um, two former students of mine um, uh, started a, a DTC, direct-to-consumer company, and the goal was um, to um, design and sell better fitting, this is the key, affordable and stylish work apparel for young professional women. The, the founders were two young professional women. They were both very tall, had trouble finding clothes that looked good, fit well, and they could afford. Um, Quincy um, co-founders raised a million. Um, they wanted to raise a million and a half. That's part of the bedfellows issue. Sort of did they get the right um, they get money from the right investors. The founders themselves, and this is the key part of the story, neither had worked in apparel design or manufacturing. Um, and they just assumed um, 
they could sort of bang out some designs and find somebody to sort of run the production process for them. And it turns out that um, apparel design and manufacturing is an incredibly complicated, convoluted, step-by-step process. Quincy team um, pretty quickly figured out they didn't understand this process, had to hire people who did. They hired them from all over established apparel companies, people who'd never worked together before, um, and, and two problems, which I promise you must have seen in, in, you know, with some of your client companies. Number one, the people from big companies had never worked in an early stage startup. So when chaos erupted, uh, which happened daily, um, they didn't swarm around the problem like six-year-olds around a soccer ball. Um, uh, the fabric sourcer said, how can I possibly help the quality control person? That's not my job. I've never done that job. Um, yes. And uh, so there was a lot of sitting on hands. And even when the founders made some stupid rookie mistakes, um, with the business and and the team could have known better. They were used to big companies where you didn't challenge um, management. Um, so so the team was a problem. The founders themselves vowed they were best friends um, and, and vowed to never let disputes over the business uh, impinge on the friendship. And it turns out if you don't um, work through the disputes because you're worried about damaging the relationship, they fester and they get worse and uh, things slow you down. So. So the decision-making was slowed down by lack of clarity over who was the boss. Um, you know, they effectively shared the CEO role, which, um, and they divvied up the functions, but on some key functions like product design, uh, they both wanted to weigh in and they had different tastes on what the apparel ought to look like. When, you know, there are third-party factories that are actually going to make this stuff. And if you're a peanut, a little startup with no reputation, no industry relationships, and um, this third-party factory promises to make your stuff when the big order comes in from, it needs to be expedited from Ann Taylor, it, you know, your stuff's going to get pushed to the back of the line, which it did. So the partners um, were not cooperative. The investors didn't really know what they were doing um, and gave bad advice. Uh, almost every um, part of the resource um, we, we, we think of those four parts, founder, team, investor, and, and partner, and every one of them was out of whack. And you know, if one is out of whack, if your co-founders are fighting, but your business is really strong otherwise, you, know, you can usually sort it out. But when all four are out of whack, um, you, you got an awful lot of rebalancing to do. So if you were a founder, okay, let's say a team of two, you got a CEO and a CTO, and they're going out and hiring their next couple of core employees or founding employees. Is there anything you'd advise founders to look for when selecting those team, member, team members or to you know, look out for? I'm actually working on a case right now on an early stage company that fits your description exactly. A business oriented founder who actually has some pretty good technical skills and a technical co-founder. Um, and uh, she wrote a very um, thorough and careful job description for her co-founder um, that really got to the core of, of the kind of relationship she wanted to build, um, the understanding about the level of risk she and the co-founder should have um, uh, it, be in sync with. Um, and, uh, uh, the um, co-founder she found was somebody who had um, uh, just sold after 10 years successfully, a, a startup company um, was exhausted, didn't think he was going to go back, you know, go into an early stage setting again. 
but um, was so persuaded by the job description early on, um, raised um, less money than they thought they were going to, um, but to help build a robust um, real version of the product, they wanted to hire their found what they called a founding engineer. So another job description, very thoughtfully crafted, you know. And after a point in time, they realized that um, they were going to spend, even if they hired somebody outstanding, an eight, an eight times or you know, in your world, um, they were going to spend so much time bringing that person on board and up to speed on what they were doing that they would actually slow themselves down. So the, the business-oriented founder, who, as I said, was could be technical, actually just rolled up her sleeves and she started coding now. Um, you know, Instead of hiring the engineer, they decided to wait. I was speaking to a partner of ours, a, a customer, a CTO of a later stage tech company recently. I said, hey, how has AI affected your, your team? And he talked about documentation and making his engineering team of 150 30% more productive, right? That's at a later stage company. But if you think of an earlier stage tech startup, if you have someone who can get by, like this individual, the, the, the business-oriented individual who is still tech savvy to some degree, if they can leverage ChatGBT to bang out a MVP and then iterate on it a little bit more, they can go further without needing to make a, that technical you know, higher. The, the, the devil's advocate to that might be that if you go and hire an 8Xer and that 8Xer leverages AI and ChatGBT, they become an 80Xer. Um, but, but, you know, time will tell. We're so early in its infancy to, to determine uh, if that will ring true. I, I wanted to, I want to touch on, um, a little bit beyond the team and the decisions made along the entrepreneurial journey. You know, they obviously play a significant role. And if I think about, you know, founding Stack SP back about a decade ago, and I think about the numerous decisions that that I've had to make over that period, I'm someone who I need to see the data, but my gut has to feel good before I make a decision, typically, typically. And the way that I get, and sometimes the data and the, and the gut are in conflict. And oftentimes, one thing that I'll do is I'll go speak with advisors or mentors or people who I trust and give them a fact pattern and say, hey, how would you react to this situation? What have you seen or can you recall a founder's decision that dramatically shifted a startup's trajectory you know in the tech space does something stand out in terms of decision making i mean so every startup almost every startup does pivots pivots are big decisions and uh uh that's true of successful startups true of failed startups so um you know you're right at the core of of um, of what what a uh, what a founder has to do, you know, and and uh, you've got I think with those decisions um, two extremes in, in terms of how founders approach. Um, you know, there is such a thing as founder ADHD, um, att attention deficit disorder, um, 
and that comes when the founder overreacts to weak signals or, or to few, too few signals. You know, a mentor says, you know, you ought to look at this. A competitor launches a new feature. You know, something happens and, you know, the team um, gets whipsawed from whatever they were doing into, into some new thing. And um, that's a really dangerous decision-making approach, you know, to sort of overreact to weak signals. And at the other extreme are, um, are, are um, ferociously stubborn entrepreneurs who are convinced um, they're on the right path. And, you know, no matter what signals the universe is delivering, um, filter them out or ignore them or manage to distort them. So, you know, they think that they reinforce the path you're on. So, you know, I mean, hopefully most entrepreneurs can stay in the zone in between those extremes. And then how much you're guided by intuition or data, I think is, is a personal thing, um, but also depends a lot on the stage. I mean, the reality is there isn't much data in an early stage company. Dr. Eisenman, you know, if you were to, you know, think about an early stage founder, are there, is there a specific piece of advice or pieces of advice you'd give to tech founders to potentially sidestep failure? You know, I think after, after doing all this work, um, the surprises are um, how much, how, how common it is for an early stage founder to ignore the discovery work when they're just getting started. You have to ask um, psychologically why, and, and it's not hard to understand. So, so the very definition of an entrepreneur is, you know, we all think of an entrepreneur as somebody with a bias for action and um, who wants to be researching the, the market when you could be building and selling. So both technical and non-technical founders, I think, fall into this trap and, and every everybody's um, everybody has the, um, even the rhetoric of the lean startup movement, you know, fail fast. Um, um, uh, launch early and often is, is sort of pushes people to go, 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 and, you know, put it out there, get some feedback. But, you know, there's another half to the lean startup, and that's the minimum viable product half of the uh, lean startup movement. The other half is the Steve Blank half, which is uh, get out of the building and go meet prospective customers and make sure you understand their top three hair on fire problems um, before you figure out, because um, you don't want your problem to be, you um, uh, number 17 on their list of, of, uh, of things to worry about at night. So that's, Absolutely. that's one piece of advice. The other piece of advice, the other big surprise from the research was this, um, uh, the, uh, the difficulty of, of, of sorting through any differences in early adopter needs and mainstream needs and how, um, how hard it is to figure out what to do about that. Um, but the key, the key piece of advice for a, a founder is, Make sure you've done the discovery and make sure you've done it both with mainstream customers and early adopters so that you know whether you're going to waltz into a situation where you're surprised by the differences. That's great feedback. And that ties back to the false positive, you know, pattern of, of, of failure. A lot of our listeners are, whether they're tech founders, they're leaders at tech startups, they're tech employees or investors, many have seen failure. You know what I mean? I don't think we should we should hide it. You know, many have seen failure. Sometimes failure is a bridge to success. Does that does that ring true to you? Do you think those who have failed in the past 
have a likelier chance of succeeding in the future. But I think a lot of what's going on is some people learn from their failure and many do not. And the ones who do not um, fall again into two extremes or two patterns. I mean, it's very typical human nature, human behavior to blame other people when you've failed. Um, sure. If you studied psychology in college, you learned about something called the fundamental attribution error, which is if you did something wrong, I think it was you were either lacking skill or will. Um, if I did something wrong or a bad thing happened, you know, the sun got in my eyes, so I dropped the ball out in the outfield um, uh, or um, some jerk cut me off um, when I was changing lanes. It wasn't because I was careless with, with my, um, my rear view mirror. Um, so, um, and uh, a lot of entrepreneurs who fail blame everybody but themselves. You know, my VC pushed me in the wrong direction. My co-founder lost interest. Um, the regulators changed. And sometimes all that's true, but you pick the VCs, you pick the co-founder. So, you, you know, you share some responsibility. The other extreme are people who, um, and we never see whether how they're going to do if they try again, because they come to the conclusion, probably incorrectly, that they were hopelessly ill-suited for the role and should never, never have been a founder and should never do it again. And again, sometimes that's true. There are people who are just badly suited for entrepreneurship. But more often the case, um, you know, those people have been too hard on themselves um, and, and, uh, and come to a flawed conclusion about their fit for the role. And then the, um, the ones who really learn and bounce back strong are able to craft a narrative. Uh, and when, you know, if they go at it again and half do, half of failed founders will try to found again within five years, um, they, the, the best will have a story for co-founders, pr pr prospective investors, et cetera, about what happened, what they did wrong, what they learned, what they'll do differently next time around. It's almost like you need that level of humility, self-awareness to reflect on it and come back strong and use it as a learning experience. That's great, Dr. Eisenman. I, I, I really appreciate your time. I, I think there were tons and tons of, of insights here that I think the audience will thoroughly enjoy. Thank you for listening to the Unstacked Startups Podcast. If you enjoyed this, you might enjoy our free monthly newsletter by Unstacked Startups called Founder Mail. Sign up for free at foundermail.substack.com. This is Elon Sachs.